And we have nothing to gain from creating a much more violent, trustless, anti-human world like the libertarians envision. And yet, they had the audacity to say that they were going to save the world. Welcome to Tech Won't Save Us. I'm your host, Paris Marks. And before we get to the show, just a final reminder about the membership drive that I'm doing this month for the podcast, Second Birthday. We've already hit the goal of 100 new or upgraded supporters at $5 a month or above. So I can bring on a producer to help me make the show and take some of the burden off of my shoulders so I can focus more on the research and the interviews rather than the editing and the the production side of things. And we are almost at the stretch goal of 150 supporters at $5 a month or above. We are currently at 140, so 10 more people in the next couple of days, and we'll hit that goal. So then I can do occasional bonus series that go beyond the regular weekly episode that maybe cover some more niche topics that don't fit in so well to the usual weekly interview that I do. And so I don't want to drag this out. I am very appreciative of everybody who has supported the show or upgraded their pledge this month and everyone who supports the show in general, even everyone who listens to the show and shares it. I just thank you so much for paying attention to the work that I do, to listening to these interviews with the fantastic tech critics that I'm able to talk to every single week. It's just fantastic. So if you like the show and you're able to do so, I would just ask you to consider becoming a supporter at $5 a month or above or upgrading your pledge this month to get those 10 more people to hit that stretch goal before the end of April. And you can do that by going to patreon.com slash us, where if you join at the Caesar Cup Replicant tier $5 a month or above, you'll get stickers, you'll get access to the Discord and new Q&As that I'll be starting in May or June. And if you join at $10 a month, the Space Cultist tier or above, you'll also get a new metal pin and you'll be getting one of the first batch of that pin. So you'll be getting them before anyone else. And so before we get into the episode, just a quick thanks to the new supporters. So a big thank you to Emily in San Francisco, to Richard from Manchester, to Mike from New York, to Becca from New York City, to Violet in Philadelphia, to Will from Cumberland, Maine, to Dan from Manchester as well, to Eon in the United States, to Alex McKeever in Kingston, Ontario, to Max Mitchell in Somerville in the US, to Henriette in Zurich, Switzerland, to Bridget in Edmonton, to Kina in Allensworth, to Andre from Cologne in Germany, to Ben, who's also from Cologne, to Bilal in Toronto, and to Nicholas from Houston. Thank you to all those people. And if you want to join them, 10 more supporters just to hit that final stretch goal of 150 new or upgraded supporters, you can go to patreon.com slash us to do that. Now for this week's guest, I'm very excited to welcome back to the show, Edward Onweso Jr. Edward is a staff writer at Motherboard, which is Vice's tech vertical and a co-host of the podcast, This Machine Kills. Now I have to say, personally, I think Ed is one of the best critical tech journalists going. I love reading his stories. He does a ton of fantastic, like deep dives on really important topics on crypto, on what's going on with the economy. And like just so many other topics, like it's it's so wide ranging and he has such a deep and broad knowledge of all of these topics. It's always fantastic to be able to pick his mind, to chat with him. And I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. As I'm sure you're aware, Elon Musk did buy Twitter this week, or it looks like he's going to buy Twitter if the deal doesn't fall through. 
I was really not interested in doing a whole episode on that. I think that there's been enough conversation about it on Twitter, in the media. Both Ed and I have written articles about it, and I'll link to those in the show notes. So we do talk about it briefly at the beginning of the episode, just to give some thoughts on what might come of this. But then we get to, I think, a much more interesting topic. And this is a term that you've probably heard before, the financialization of everything. The ways that financialization and that speculation are extending through society and that we interact with these dynamics more and more in our everyday lives and we're pushed to interact with them because companies naturally benefit when these processes do take place and how technology and and particular technologies help to extend this dynamic even further in a really insidious and a really exploitative way. And so I think that this is a fantastic conversation that gets to many aspects of what is actually going on with this, why it's a serious problem and why it needs to be opposed. And so I really hope that you enjoy the conversation. And just a final note that the membership drive does end on April 30th. And so if you like the show, you haven't supported already, or you're able to upgrade your existing pledge, make sure to go to patreon.com slash tech won't save us to help support the work that I do in making the show every week having these conversations. So thanks so much and enjoy this week's conversation. Ed, welcome to Tech Won't Save Us. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. It's been forever, I feel like, since you were last on the show. Like you were one of the early guests, I think like in the first 20. And now, you know, I'm I'm heading toward episode 120. So it's been <laughs> quite a while <laughs> since you've been back on the show. But, you know, it's great to speak with you again, as always. And there is so much that we could get into. I have a really interesting topic, I think, that I want to talk about. But before we get to it, it feels like we just have to talk about the topic of the moment, at least to touch on it, which is Elon Musk buying Twitter. Or, you know, it seems like that is going to go ahead based on what we've seen the past few days. You know, I'm not really interested in how it got to this point. I think that there's enough that's been written and, and published on that. If people want, they can read either of the articles that we've written on that on that aspect of it. But I'm wondering what you think happens now and what do you think Twitter is going to look like under the ownership and, and governance of Elon Musk? Yeah, you know, I think there's been a, a bunch of argument about that uh, because on the one hand, we're seeing some changes or shifts immediately, like him disparaging members of the executive team or, or employees of the company in ways that would not have ever seen any other uh, shareholders do before and that leading to harassment of them you know him being a lightning rod for right wingers for his own cultists you know that may change some of the dynamics of it but i think as other people have observed over the past month elon musk can't do too much to change it i mean the reason presumably he got it is because of the way it works and the way it works is he tweets something it makes him a lot of money or it makes the thing a lot of money you know you're not really going to tinker with that especially when you took out 25 billion dollars worth of loans you know and half of that is against your own stock you need to make some money out of it so there aren't there i don't think they're going to be like real core fundamental changes to twitter I mean, Twitter used to be a private company. Twitter used to be obsessed with free speech or have rhetoric about obsessed with free speech. And it used to be run by megalomaniac libertarian mystic. I mean, like, you know, so I don't think there's too many differences now besides some of how he's going to be talking about the employees. I think then the question becomes how much of a difference will that make? You know, are employees going to revolt or shift under that? Is there going to be a change in the way that it feels on the website? Probably not. I mean, we're still going to have the right-wing trolls, the harassment problems, um, 
the seemingly lackadaisical enforcement around them when the right wing violates them, uh, still going to have policies that unfairly come down on leftists, that unfairly come down on dissidents, that unfairly come down on sex workers, that unfairly come down on people that the site deems, hey, like, you know, like, we can afford to experiment or crack the hammer on these people, right? So I don't think, like, those core things are changing. And a lot of the discussion is kind of feels a little hysteric because it's like, this is not a town square. This is like a space that is largely used by people in media, politics, Hollywood, uh, Silicon Valley, uh, Washington, D.C., New York City. Like the, it's it's like an elite space. It's not it's not like where we all go to have uh, discussions like it's like it's classical Athens or some shit, you know. <laughs> yeah you know we're not all on the platform having like these really reasoned debates all the time it's like you know shit posting or or people piling on other people like it's not a platform that's designed for that kind of like reasoned discussion that you that you would get an idea is actually happening on there based on the way that some people are talking about it and i completely agree with you that i think that the changes that we're actually going to see are much more minor than what everyone is kind of making it out to be on the on the right who thinks that it's going to be like fair game anything goes and then you know people who are i guess more liberal or or progressive who feel like oh my god this is like a, an incredibly chilling moment that elon musk is going to be scrolling through all our dms to see what we're saying like all this kind of stuff i i just think it's it's a bit overblown um i do think it's interesting though you talked about the employees you know, you have have Ben Shapiro and people like that talking now about a Twitter deep state, which is going to stop Elon Musk from making the changes that he wants to make. And, right. and you can totally see a situation where Elon Musk doesn't actually change very much because he doesn't really intend to. Um, and then because he doesn't change very much, that just kind of amps up the right wing's pressure and attacks on Twitter employees themselves because they're not seeing the changes. And instead of blaming techno king god elon musk <laughs> gets put on the twitter deep state which is twitter's employees yeah you know i think the dynamics the social dynamics will probably change and that will feel a lot more present because it's a social media network but the underlying structure i can't imagine maybe like a paywall here or there you know some monetization maybe some shift in the ad business but yeah you know like underlying what is going to change is probably like the experience of some people on it but, you know, again, like Twitter has for years been like a cesspool, <laughs> you know, like he's not going to make the bad site better. He's not going to make the bad site worse. And we're still going to all be on it for the most part. Yeah. And, and he still wants the amplification that is built into the structure of Twitter, because that is essential for him to keep his following and the interest that exists for him, but also to have that capability that when he tweets, he drives the prices of cryptocurrencies or stocks or or what have you, right? Yeah. You know, if I was him, I would, you know, that's something kind of worth $44 billion, especially if, you're car, if you have a car company that's way overvalued, you know? <laughs> yeah. Why not spend $44 billion, some of it leveraged on the loans against the car company itself? It's poetic in a sense, right? Totally. What you're talking about there is the benefit that Elon Musk gets from having these tweets and then those tweets then affecting these prices of things like cryptocurrencies and his stocks, the way that Tesla is valued way more than any other car company, even though it produces far fewer cars. 
but you know you get the promise that oh my god there's some like grand vision of like self-driving robo taxis that is going to make a ton of money because elon musk has been talking about it for years and never delivering it and then that distorts the the value or the perceived value that exists with this company which results in this like massive inflation in the actual price or, or the actual like stock value share value of the company um which has massive benefits for Musk himself and has made him the richest man in the world. Yeah. Listen, I think it was Max Reed who said like Tesla's unit economics are a little bit better than others, partly because like you don't need, really need PR marketing. You can just rely on Twitter. I mean, you know, maybe if we factored in the cost of acquiring Twitter, it'd be a little different, but you know, Twitter is a good place to cultivate your fan base, cultivate them to be as aggressive as possible as fanatic as possible, right? And also rely on amplification of your claims, debating of the claims, and the tendency of the media at times, even though it's been years and years and years of Elon just lying to us, the tendency to kind of uncritically repeat what he says, you know? This is all stuff that is just incredibly helpful for him, and there's really no reason for him to do anything to change it, even if those changes might be good for the public square, you know? Yeah, yeah. Which, uh, you know, I'm not sure I'd describe Twitter that way. Yeah, exactly. No. <laughs> <laughs> Key to democracy or, or whatever. Um, but no, I, I completely agree with your perspective on Twitter. I, th- I think that we have uh, a lot of common views on that. Um, and I would say that if people want to know more, you know, we're not going to have a whole episode of discussion on this. I'll link to our articles on Twitter and Elon Musk in the show notes. So if people want to read more about it, if they haven't already read enough already, then they can find it down there. But what we were talking about there with the way that Elon Musk is able to kind of drive these share prices and how, you know, these values can be completely distorted plays into other phenomenon that we've been seeing in recent years, as it feels like more and more of our lives are becoming financialized, involve speculation, whether it's on houses, on assets, on the cryptocurrencies that were all being sold. It seems increasingly there is this this effort to turn more and more things that we are dealing with into things where the price is constantly fluctuating, where we need to pay attention to that, where there's even less stability than there used to be. And that is obviously having incredible effects on society and also who benefits from those sorts of things. And the term that is often used is like, or, or that I hear or that I use is the financialization of everything as these dynamics that have been slowly gaining ground over, over a number of decades now seem to be kind of infecting even more aspects of society. And so, you know, I have specific questions and, and aspects of this that I want to discuss with you. But I guess I just want to start with your broader thinking on this topic and how you think that this has been developing recently. I think financialization has been a big driver of crypto. I mean, you look at what Satoshi Nakamoto envisioned in the white paper versus what exists now, and they're wildly divergent visions of Bitcoin, Ethereum, crypto, so on and so forth. I mean, he was not envisioning a mechanism to create layers of financialized instruments or financial instruments that allow you to turn parts of the world into digital assets or create digital assets that point to objects in the real world, right? And this was initially envisioned as a way to transfer money and to create borderless uh, or cross-border payment systems that would be faster and probably more instantaneous and cheaper eventually um, than equivalent systems based in fiat. 
But what you have today is a lot of people who are using these systems not really interested in that element, which is an interesting and an important one, but as a result, a neglected one, right? Where people are not really interested in building out infrastructure so that people all over the world, if they really wanted to, could instantly receive money from one another that wouldn't take a long time to get there, be subject to a lot of fees. Instead, what is happening is we're, we're creating a pretty complicated, opaque, esoteric system where you can speculate, where you can pursue infinite leverage, where you can turn things that aren't commodities or shouldn't be commodities into commodities, trade them, bet against them in the future or bet on them in the future. If you're someone who does believe in crypto, I think on many levels, it's a perversion of what the promise of that was supposed to be. But if, if you're a skeptic like me, you know, and you, you know, stepping back at this, it just looks like another one of the financial products that are rolled out and make sense to be rolled out as capitalists are searching for more ways to make money and more ways to squeeze the last trenches of a return on their investments, right? I mean, most of the stuff just flat out doesn't exist. It refers to projects that won't exist. And it offers solutions to problems that don't exist, right? So a lot of it is just like really just trying to make as much money as possible before the whole thing comes crashing down, in my opinion. Yeah, no, absolutely. One of the things that I find really interesting from your answer is this idea that there was this initial vision of creating this kind of peer-to-peer payment system that would make it easier to transfer money across borders, what have you. Yeah, there's some kind of libertarian elements to that. But even if cross-border payments was made easier to do, I feel like that is still a key part of the rhetoric and like the justification for these technologies that you often hear both from the industry itself, but even from progressive supporters. If there's people who are more like liberal and left-leaning who support these things, that's usually something that is going to be brought up. But then when you see like, for example, El Salvador, which you know, adopted Bitcoin as one of its currencies. And in that case, one of the justifications was people will be able to send their remittances in Bitcoin. It'll be really convenient. But people found when looking into it, that in many cases, it was still easier to send remittances through the traditional means. You'd pay less fees that way. And earlier this year, there was an analysis and like less than 2% of remittances were actually being sent in crypto. Like it wasn't something that was popular and being used. It was a whole different kind of aspect to this that the government was really interested in and that was really driving it. And the remittances just serves as like a marketing element of it rather than something that's actually at its core or, or at the core of what is, is actually driving these things. Yeah. You know, like I can send right now $100 worth of Ethereum to my cousin in Nairobi. And they will get $100 worth of Ethereum after whatever transaction fees I might have to pay on Coinbase or some other centralized exchange to get it to them, right? They're not going to be able to get that $100 worth of Ethereum out in a way where it still retains all that value, right? There's not an easy infrastructure for them to convert that into cash. And there's also not an easy infrastructure for them to pay for other goods with that instead of cash, right? And those are supposed to be two of the core things that come with a borderless payment system where it's peer-to-peer, right? Isn't the, the premise is supposed to be I can send money to someone anywhere in the world. And it's not simply that they can receive the money, it's that they can actually use it then. They can either use it to get fiat or they can use it in lieu of fiat. And we're not anywhere near that. I mean, even in the United States, even in Europe, right? A lot of the times when we have these these systems to onboard and offboard people, right? They're piecemeal. 
They're patchy. They're weird middlemen that emerge in them. Uh, they're not consistent. And the overlying system is still you know, a little too volatile, right? When you really step back and you look at a lot of the instances where that rhetoric is deployed, like you said, where it's a minimal amount of remittances in uh, El Salvador or where people are pointing to Ukraine as an example, saying that, you know, individuals were able to move their money out because of the Western sanctions, which were crushing and froze, you know, liquidity in the banks and prevented, you know, regular people from being able to move money in and out of them. You know, and that's good. It's good in theory, right, that people are able to move their money in and out of this or that account or a place to store it. and that they shouldn't be subject to sanctions because, you know, the war isn't their fault. But at the end of the day, this is still a minority of the people who are dealing with crypto, a minority of the use cases, and not the primary use case. Their success is incidental to the actual driving purpose of the, the building of these infrastructure today, right? Today, the primary focus of building out this infrastructure is to get more people onto it so they can gamble, speculate, throw money into it increased trading volume, so on and so forth. Not so that they can send money back and forth to each other, to their families, without fees and, and transaction taxes being extracted from the payment itself, right? And so, like you said, it's just marketing, I think, in a lot of cases. Totally. You know, and one of the interesting things there is that Satoshi envisioned this, whoever Satoshi was, right. as this ability to have this peer-to-peer payment system But one of the reasons that didn't work out is because of the structure of the mining and how that really limits the number of transactions that can reasonably be done on a network in a a certain amount of time, but also because of this speculatory aspect of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies themselves, because you can't rely on that as a means to pay for things like in a day-to-day sense when the values are fluctuating so much over small periods of time, right? And they can fluctuate really significant amounts of money. And so then as that becomes the means through which you're supposed to like hold your money or store things, but also to buy things like, you know, whether it's NFTs or to participate in DAOs or things like that. But then also if the kind of visions of Web3 are able to take hold and that becomes a central piece of how we transact on like a greater scale, then people are forced to then pay a lot more attention to the value of their money, to what is happening in their bank accounts, to, you know, what is happening in the markets in a way that, you know, when I look at my bank account with a regular bank, like I don't have to open it up every day and see what the values of things are, see what the value of the Canadian dollar is. Like, I know it's going to be relatively stable. And so I don't have those worries. I think that's exactly right. Part of this idea of liberation or democratization of finance, the rhetoric there, is that you should be in control of your money and that banks shouldn't be in control of your money and that middlemen shouldn't be in control of your money. And part of that plays off of the fact that people don't trust these institutions, especially after the great financial crisis, right? Justifiably so. Up until the financial crisis, they had everyone's money and they played around with it and they nearly destroyed the global economy because of it and then nothing happened to them as a result, right? It makes sense not to trust them. And then even unrelated to that, right, they screw over racial minorities whenever they're able to, right? By taking extra fees out of their accounts, by denying them loans or charging them higher interest rates. So there's a lot of ample reason not to trust financial institutions. But That has then translated into people justifying the recreation of financial systems and institutions. But since it's associated with crypto, it's something that you can trust 
or by offloading all the risk, all the responsibility, all this micromanagement onto you and saying that if you fuck up, it's totally your fault, right? You just need to read up on all of this. You need to follow my channel. You need to, you know, to read these resources, buy these books. This is not financial advice, but this is the only way that you can, you know, manage your finances if you're closely managing this. I think that, yeah, certainly you want some sort of financial system that you don't have to deal with actors you don't trust, but you also shouldn't have one where you're expected to micromanage your money the way that someone who has far more capital than you does, right? And I think that's also another part of the picture, right? A lot of the visions that are being sold to people are silently visions of what people with a lot more capital might desire and be more comfortable with having the ability to trade between multiple exchanges or be able to swap into multiple blockchains or be able to play around with multiple currencies, right? Whereas, you know, your average individual trader doesn't have much of a need to do that. They don't need to play in decentralized finance and recreate credit default swaps, right? They don't need to trade derivatives, right? Maybe they're just interested in putting a little bit of money that they have now and trying to grow it as a as a trade in the regular financial market. But packaged in with this vision of financial liberation is also like you can be like us. You can you can also be rich. And so that rhetoric is always locked into each other, right? When they're talking about financial liberation, it really just feels like they're saying you can experience finance the way that wealthy individuals do. And I think that a lot of times, a lot of the rhetoric, a lot of the visions of crypto, of financialized elements within crypto, decentralized finance systems in crypto are really just trying to sell people a vision of the world that rich people are familiar with convincing these regular individuals who are putting up their savings or putting up their week's check or putting up stuff they can't afford to lose to play with them so that they can be like them, right? And really, it's just like, it's so they can eat their lunch, essentially. I think it's a great point. And I want to start expanding it out because crypto is one aspect of this, Mm -hmm. but there's much more to it, right? And one of the earliest aspects of this during the pandemic, or, or one of the ones that caught a lot of attention was the meme stock phenomenon, right? And when we're thinking about that, one of the things that I always come back to is this idea that like, everyone should be owning stocks, should be participating in the stock market is really something that takes hold in the 1980s, right after the neoliberal turn, and you have the invention of like the retail trader, the idea that people should be buying stocks, participating in the stock market, trying to like increase their portfolios, what have you. And now a few decades down the line, these ideas have evolved, have grown. And early in the pandemic, when there are some people who are at home who have more money that they can spend, can can risk on these sorts of things. Now there is the use of, you know, Reddit and, and Discord servers and whatnot to look at different stocks to see if there's ways that you can you can play the market in the way that wealthy people do. But, you know, I guess it's this more kind of crowdsourced notion of it. And so you have the meme stocks, people playing with AMC and GameStop in particular, but there are a number of other stocks. And I believe this still goes on to to a certain degree. But one of the things that stood out to me there was that it was positioned as this way for people who are participating in this to have like financial liberation, right? You know, you're, you're betting on these stocks, you might make a lot of money if it goes up. But what we found out later was actually a lot of people lost a lot of money when they were making the trades on that. And there were some people, there was a story in CNN, I believe, that spoke to a few of the people who made it big after this meme stock phenomenon, who who actually pulled out like tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars near the top. And they said that then they went into trading more full time. And what they found was that like their mental health 
just went off a cliff because they were constantly worried about the values of these stocks and if their money was still going up and if they were making more money, it doesn't seem empowering at all. And it seems to completely miss what is actually going on when we talk about it in that way. Yeah, you know, I think the idea that finance needs to be democratized plays on like a kind of understandable sentiment that maybe the economy shouldn't be privately controlled or centralized in the hands of people with interests far removed from ours to introduce an even more sinister application of it, which is like your liberation is investing in their products, right? To democratize the stock market or to democratize finance is usually just to democratize the means of investing or gambling on the stock market and not actually anything that's on the stock market, right? Not democratizing any of the companies, not democratizing any of the workplaces, but instead just like allowing all of us to gamble on it. And that's not, that's not really uh, anything meaningful liberatory, right? You're playing even more into their hands of the very same people that you're trying to get away from. With that sentiment, I think it's like part of this like particularly dangerous strain of neoliberal, of libertarian, you know, however you may frame it. It's a, it's a right wing, and I think on a deeper level, capitalist sentiment that's pretty anti-human, that the idea that you need to sacrifice yourself or sacrifice pieces of yourself on a marketplace to be able to justify your place in the world, and that even if you lose a limb, even if you lose your savings, you're supposed to operate as if everything is okay, because if you don't, then you're weak, then you are lazy, then you have poor constitution, then it's your fault, and you're too risky. You know, it's a mark against you that you weren't able to play by these rules that are slanted against you. I mean, this is baked into the ethos on those markets, and I think it's also baked into the ethos, or becoming baked into the ethos in crypto, right? Where, you know, even if there are people who gen have genuine beliefs about, or you know, delusions about what it is that they can build or what it is they can invest in. They're incorporated into a culture where the risk is on you. Everyone knows that they're trading on a risky thing. Everyone knows that they're speculating. Everyone knows that they're here for the profit and, you know, for the most part, not actually to build anything that might have any social utility. And it is your fault if you're not able to quickly move between the arbitrary whims of the market or the whales that are in control and dominating or individuals who are colluding to pump one coin or dump another, right? If you don't have a good grip on a market that is consolidated against you and rigged against you, then that's your fault and you suffer accordingly. This is one of the reasons why the the financialization of everything is particularly insidious because it just encourages people to accept privatization of everything, to accept like these increasingly anti-human sentiments, and to look to the market for salvation in more and more areas, right? To just keep going back to the casino to make the money that everyone just stole from you, essentially. Yeah, no. You know, one of the things that stands out to me with the, the meme stock phenomenon and this notion that people should be investing in the stock market as well, and I would say even trading crypto, is that for your regular average trader, let's put it that way, you have to be constantly watching what's going on, paying attention to what's going on yourself, whereas these really wealthy people have algorithmic tools that do it for them. So long before you as an individual would be able to notice that that a price has shifted or that something has changed the algorithmic trading tools that whales and and really wealthy people who are who are trading in the stock market are observing will have already taken their actions because they don't have to actually watch it in real time like that because they have tools that can just take advantage of it instead of distracting themselves i guess with what's going on 
it's slated in their direction, right? Um, you know, to step back, I mean, I think another way to compare it to is to think about, like, you know, when it comes to venture capitalists, how do venture capitalists invest? Like, a lot of them invest because they're relying on social networks and connections to figure out and get a sense of what's something that they should invest in, what's something that other people have made money off of, and jumping in as a result of it, right? So, so a lot of, like, groups of people agreeing that something is worth something because other people have invested in it. And then uh, sometimes investing in something, not even because other people think that it has value, but because they think or they anticipate that other people might believe that it has that value. And so they should get ahead of the curve. I think that this is, um, you know, ported over with with meme stocks, with stock trading, with crypto, and that a lot of the people who are making money are making money because they're already early on a trade, because they have some insider information. Because they have access to tools that allow them to execute the trades like you were talking about before everyone else and front run them because they're lucky or because they just have enough money where they can throw it around like VCs to in enough places where one of the wins is going to make up for a long string of losses and come out ahead still. Average person has access to none of that except luck and sometimes maybe inside information if they've joined some group, right? Which is part of the reason why there are pushes for these groups where you can learn about the next meme stock to pump and the next coin to pump, right? Or unless they are getting mentored on how to do it, which is why there's also a push for this sort of financial education on TikTok, on YouTube, on on Reddit, on all these other social networks where you can learn from someone and they can mentor you on how to day trade, right? Or how to, how to pick the next GameStop or how to pick the next Ethereum and so on and so forth, right? So it's just like a lot of like people don't have access to this stuff. Savvy people realize that and then market to the people who don't have access to it, simulacrum of it, saying that with this, you can get wealthy, rich too, and climb up to the top. I can give you a ladder to get up to the top with me. Yeah. And that's always a false promise, right? Because as you're saying, they don't have the tools to actually be able to do that. Um, But the wealthy people who are, you know, putting out that promise, who are, who are saying that are absolutely benefiting from the entry of all of these people with not a ton of money into the markets. I want to shift a little bit because we've been talking about trading and, and the stock markets and crypto, but there's, there's another element of this that seems particularly important, right? And this is the extension of, of gambling itself. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that some of these, these stock trading and crypto trading and uh, meme stocks can be seen as a form of gambling. But I guess more explicitly, you know, what we've been seeing in the United States in, in recent years is the legalization of sports betting through a number of states. This is building on kind of the growth of gambling through through apps and playing game straps. And I know that that's still uh, illegal in a number in a number of states in more states than sports betting itself. But globally, that's something that that has become more and more common and more and more frequent for people to be participating in. Can you talk a bit about the legalization of sports betting and what we're seeing with that and how that is extending the degree of gambling that is happening in the United States? There has been a concerted effort uh, since the Supreme Court decision in 2018, I believe, struck down the explicit federal ban on gambling and opened the door for state-by-state legalization. I mean, it was still illegal. Most states had already made it illegal. But state-by-state lobbying, led largely by DraftKings, was able to push through sports gambling and then outright gambling 
through online apps or the appearance of bookies and stadiums, uh, through partnerships or attempts at partnerships with industries outright, like the NFL or the NBA. The most recent one, or maybe the most recent one to me, because I live here, is New York, where almost immediately after the legalization of gambling, you saw ads on the subway, you saw ads online, on social media. They had ridiculous promotions where you could basically get thousands of dollars of free money with which you could gamble. Part of this is because in the pandemic, you know, people have been sitting around, got a bit of uh, stimulus payments. And so these companies believe that this was an opportunity to get people to start gambling and, and pour their money into it. And then if you could get them gambling with stimulus payments and if the house wins on the, over the long run, they lose that money, they come back for more, right? It's pretty easy to get someone hooked on gambling. Um, it's constructed pretty well as an addictive experience if you go in a casino right if, if, if any of you have ever been in a casino you notice like they serve you alcohol there are no windows the lights are pretty much designed to keep you focused solely on the machines and even the interactive design of the, the machines is it's meant to keep you in and that this is a you know technique that has been structured to to be adopted by by apps like robin hood right they have psychologists come in and help design these places as well to ensure that people you know aren't, aren't easily able to exit a casino right it feels like a maze it feels like you're stuck in it feels like you're missing out right when you don't see another area it's another area where there's a lot of noise a lot of machines or other types of games right these are sites where you're meant to spend as much money as possible and so there's been there's been a growth in that sort of gambling but it's with the apps and with the development of the apps and and bringing in people to make these apps as addictive as possible as well as enticing as possible in ways that mirror the machines and the physical places there's been a huge growth in the app-based uh, gambling, right? Specifically around sports during the pandemic. And I think part of this is also not solely because of the stimulus payments and not to say stimulus payments made people say, I'm going to go gamble. It's more that the company saw you had the extra money and said, spend it on us gambling. But it's also that in general, people are suffering, right? A lot of people are not fully recovered from the Great Recession still. I mean, families still not recovered from that, right? A lot of people are still, you know, suffering with student debt. A lot of people are, are suffering with low-paying jobs. A lot of people have medical debt. A lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck. The push by gambling companies is a particularly insidious one to say, like, yeah, you know, you are out of money right now. But one way you could make money is to come to the casino on your phone make some money, right? We'll even give you a few thousand dollars and we'll match you so that you can come to the casino and spend as much time as we'd like for you to, to lose it on, keep coming back and back so we can make money, right? A lot of this, the casinos, the trading, the crypto, you know, as we build up the analysis of like more things that are speculative and gambling in the economy, the common theme that is that they're all preying on people's desperation, right? People are living paycheck to paycheck in this country. People are starving in this country. People are overwhelmed with debt in this country and are looking for an easy way out, not because they don't want to work or something like that, but because it's fucking hard and it sucks and it's miserable to be crushed by that much poverty debt desperation. This shouldn't be a surprise, right? Because we have known, we know that gambling is an incredibly predatory industry, right? Even even like where, I don't know if in the States, if you have like public gambling agencies, like we do, like with the scratch cards and, and things like that. But in, in Canada, we do. And like, it's very well known that these things like target the poor most of all, but they still continue because 
they bring in tax revenue, right? And like, you know, the virtual lottery terminals that are at a ton of bars that like, again, we know like target people who have gambling addictions, who generally make less money, it, it kind of destroys their lives, but they're still allowed to exist because they bring in revenue. And it seems like in the same way, like these sports betting apps and, and these just general gambling apps are being sold in a similar way where states in the United States are going to be able to make more money, some more tax revenue by allowing this to happen. And so for some reason, it's it's being allowed instead of the states actually considering like the well-being of their citizens, of their residents. I was listening to an episode of True and On recently where they were talking about the sports betting and sports gambling. And one of the things that really stood out to me was how it's not just betting on a game, but in the same way that these tech companies have expanded the degree of data collection, like online, but increasingly in our lives with smart home gadgets, wearables, and, and what have you, that when it comes to sports, there's also an effort to expand the amount of data that is collected on sports games. So then you don't just bet on the game itself and like what is actually going to come out of it, but you can then make micro bets on different things that are happening throughout the games, different stats, things like that. So it significantly expands the amount of potential gambling that you can do or, or you know that viewers can do. And there are increasingly these agreements being made between the teams and the sports gambling companies to promote it through the games um, and, and potentially to do more things to kind of integrate that betting into the games themselves. So this seems like a really dangerous and, and worrying development of where things are going and how poor regulation, but also how tech and, and what tech is able to do is enabling these really predatory and exploitative developments. Yeah, I mean, I think Uncut Gems is a good example of like a sort of pre-existing division of odds that you could do in a bet, right? Where you could bet on who's going to get the tip off. You can bet on who's going to be up at halftime. You can bet on if a certain player is going to hit this or that many shots, how many times they're going to visit the free throw line, who's going to get fouled out. I mean, there are already like a pretty wide variety of options. But like you said, data collection allows for the creation of more arbitrary data sets that you can assign probabilities to and then gamble on, right? And I think these companies have kind of perfected the way of presenting that information as, oh, if you don't bet on this, if you don't include this in the list of bets, you're missing out. These are great odds. You can make a little bit more money. Why don't you bet on this? Oh, why don't you bet on this? Why don't you bet on this, right? It's a good way to increase the amount of money that people put into a bet because they think that they'll get even more out of it. Uh, because they don't have a good estimation of what the probabilities actually are. And also it's a good way to keep people coming back because it's unlikely that they're going to hit every possible part of their bet, but you can make them feel FOMO, right? Oh, if only you had gotten that one right, you would have gotten a 5x payout, right? If only you got that one out, you got a 9x payout. I mean, this feeling of missing out and this feeling of desperation mixed together, it's dangerous. It's really insidious. These companies don't care, of course, right? They're just trying to get as much money as possible or figure out what is the most valuable product for them. How can we profit? Is the best way to profit offering all these options and cleaning up? Or is the best way to profit you know, pulling together data that we might glean from this or that part of the transaction? Or is the best way, like you said, making deals with these partnerships so that we can offer that? Like, you know, where should our profits direct us? It doesn't matter the expense to the to the people and the population, right? All that really matters is the money that they make. And then they'll come up after the fact with why 
the money they make and the cost that they do on the population is not really accurate and they actually provide more good. They give revenue to the education system as a lot of casinos and gambling systems justify, right? Or that they help, you know, with this or that community initiative or they, you know, help this or that aspect of the team. Or they, you know, it doesn't matter. The, the, the point is, like, it's just bullshit. It's all bullshit to justify them stealing as much money as possible from people's pockets. One of the things that seems particularly interesting to me when I think about how these tech tools and, and this data collection makes these things possible, whether it's, you know, an increased amount of sports betting, but also like the crypto trading, the meme stocks, all these sorts of things, is how many of the tech services that we rely on have also found inspiration in financial markets and in in gambling and in things like that, right? When we think about how Google itself designed its digital ad markets based on the stock market and took inspiration from that. Tim Wong has a book where he, he kind of lays that out. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes with greater information to be able to allow people to like more easily trade and, and do the algorithmic trading of digital ads. And, you know, it's in a market that it completely controls. And then when we look at the social media apps, as you were talking about bringing on psychologists to tell them like how people are going to react to try to keep them on and using the apps, social media apps also have used the same kind of tools that keep people engaged on the app to keep people working. And it seems kind of insidious then to consider those links between how the tech industry has been inspired by these financial technologies and, and integrated them themselves, and now how these technologies are then being used to extend the degree to which these kind of financial and speculative incentives are then permeating society. Yeah, you know, it's the drive for profit and to externalize all the costs has infected every single institution and relation among people with the drive to profit and externalize every single cost, right? It's like how I think, you know, this idea or this vision or caricature of human beings as self-interested greedy beings who maximize their own their interest rationally ends up becoming a, a self-fulfilling prophecy right because if that's your idea of society then you design institutions and you design products and you design services and you design markets in a way very different than if people are altruistic or kind or show solidarity with one another and as a result you effectively indoctrinate and, and inculcate people with the idea that all they should be is greedy and self-interested and maximizing their own uh, profit from any situation and transactional. And then they go on to create institutions that prioritize human beings and their relations when they are transactional and self-interested and so on and so forth, right? And make it much harder and create incentive structures where it makes no sense for you to do a good thing or do something that costs you, even if it benefits another individual or show solidarity in any way, shape or form. Right. I mean, institutions are, we all know they're immoral things, they're profit vehicles, they're, they're financial instruments, right. They're not arbiters of morality. Right. But we are increasingly creating systems where individuals within them, it doesn't even really occur to them to think or to be uncomfortable with, you know, that sort of system and that we should have a society where questions of morality and questions of what human beings should be able to do and their own freedom don't enter the picture and where we don't ask, is this thing that we're doing hurting people or helping people? Does this thing we're doing have any social utility beyond making money? 
and a profit? And if it does, like, what's the actual social utility of the profit making that it's doing, right? Does it help people if the gambling sector's profits are up 40 or 50% in one year? Does it help people if crypto's adoption is 200% up, right? Does it help people if financial apps and financial tools are used by 20% more people each year? Probably not, right? I mean, they do in a narrow sense of the way that they're marketed, right? Which is liberate you from the shackles of fiat, of your broker, and of your bank, right? And lift you up by your wallet into the hands of anonymous brokers and anonymous bankers who are role-playing as scrapping crypto day traders, right? Um, and lift you up into the pockets of whales. You have already cornered this or that coin or this or that market, right? It's all pretty depressing picture that I think ends up lining up with what the picture of the world that libertarians or libertarian inspired people envision, which is one where you don't trust each other, uh, where your connections with each other are voluntary and end the second you don't want them to, where everything is a transaction, where you're always maximizing your own benefit because everyone else is maximizing their own benefit. I mean, that's a pretty disgusting, depressing world to live in. But that's the world that we're hurtling towards because these people have managed to infect everyone with that mindset and vision for how humans should act with each other. It really pisses you off to think that the tech industry for so long was able to like sell this image of itself as like capitalist companies that can still do good in the world. And, you know, to a certain degree, still get away with that when you see the actual impacts that they have had and continue to have and enable to to occur in society. Have you ever seen that show, uh, Silicon Valley? Absolutely. Yeah. I just started watching it a few months ago and I was kind of surprised with like, I know the show, of course, is not itself like a perfect capture, but you can tell when a show is referencing something that had tenor in the culture at the moment and the way that the idea that tech companies could do good had tenor the way it's established in the show the way the show talks about it is like yeah of course some companies can't do good but there are companies that clearly can do good and do good all the time (laughs) right you know and that this company maybe is going to be one of them the search engine pied piper or whatever it is is one that could do it. And all these other ones, they're nefarious, they're run by individuals we don't trust. These are the people we all make fun of and don't trust and know are the villains, but these guys are the good guys and there are others like them in Silicon Valley. It's insane that like that was, from what I read about the reviews and what I read about the commentary at the time, like a really dominant, compelling vision of what Silicon Valley is. And when like, this is an industry that was started because of the Cold War relationships, right? how to make the military kill people better, essentially. (laughs) You know, like, what world is it making better? For who is it making the world better? It's always been for narrow groups of elites and individuals who stand to gain from stuff that me and you don't. We don't have nothing to gain from war. We have nothing to gain from the proliferation of gambling. We have nothing to gain from just, like, creating a much more violent, you know, trustless, anti-human world like the libertarians envision who created silicon valley and yet they had the audacity to say that they were going to save the world you know when really it's the other way we have to save the world from them it feels like absolutely that is essential to creating a better world is <laughs> yeah. to stop what they want to do right yeah. and and i think just to expand on that to build on what you're saying i wanted to to mention a few of the other ways that you know tech has succeeded in obviously we can't talk about every every 
aspect of this in this conversation. It's just too big of a topic. So I wanted to get to a few of the other kind of technologies and, and how these have enabled this, this kind of expansion of financialization and specula speculation in society. And, you know, Uber is, you know, a company that we both love to hate, that we've written a lot about. Its entire goal, even though it talked about making taxis more convenient and whatnot, was really to deregulate cabs. It brought in the surge pricing, so you can never really depend on what the price of your ride is going to be. And now it's making agreements like in New York City with taxi companies that seems to be at least to a certain degree, adding surge pricing to taxis now. So you lose your dependability of the price of, of that kind of service, right? And in a similar way, you have these companies, e-commerce, but I'm sure we'll increasingly start to see it in stores as well, where the price of, of an item can be more dynamic, can change more, more easily. Um, online, there are reports that suggest that depending on you know, what it knows about you, it might even alter prices, certain websites can. And so this allows like this larger kind of shift in you know, the way that commerce works, the way that consumerism works, the way that companies are able to specifically target you if they know that you will pay a higher price. But even if you look beyond that, like technologies have enabled this crypto boom, this this kind of speculation on digital assets that that don't actually have any foundation to them, the gambling apps and the data capture that allow us to gamble on more aspects of a sports game and who knows whatever else they'll have us gambling on in the future, the algorithmic trading in stock markets and digital ad markets that puts these technologies, these algorithms in control of like all this trading that is going on, most of the trading and, and occasionally has really weird effects on the market when they when they malfunction. And even when we look at the housing crisis, which was part of an article that you wrote, like looking at this kind of casino economy for vice last year, a key part of the financialization of housing that we've seen, like the growth of it, is the ability of private equity firms to buy up all of these houses. And yes, that was enabled by the price crash post 2008, but also by the ability to use technologies to manage these houses from afar with smart locks, with different means of like collecting data, of getting rent from people, of controlling the relationship between the renter and the private equity firm. And so there are just so many ways that technology is is being used and certainly poor regulation and regulation that that doesn't keep up with the times or that assumes that technology companies can be considered outside of usual regulations for a particular sector as part of that as well but tech is key to creating these like financialized speculative relationships and extending them into more aspects of society i don't know if there are aspects of that you want to comment on or just the general kind of trend that we're seeing there yeah, you know, I think it's I think you're absolutely right. You know, tech is is being used to collect data and aggregate it into arbitrary categories which can then, you know, be put on the market and specifically to quantify as much as reality as possible. I mean, one of the most absurd solutions to climate change I've ever heard was uh spearheaded by Henry Paulson Jr., who was the Secretary of Treasury under George W. Bush when the housing crisis happened. Uh, saying that we need to quantify every single asset in nature, you know, his, his, <laughs> his term, not mine, because only then can you properly calculate the cost at which a polluter should pay. You know, what costs will deter a polluter from polluting? How can we create markets for pollution credits? How can we um, incentivize investors 
to invest in the future. And it's like, shut the fuck up, dude. Like, you know, like this is, <laughs> this is, what are you talking about to me? The, the drive to quantify everything, I think also it speaks to people who just have no ambition and belief that anything can be done outside of the market. Like in New York City, when they integrated taxis into Uber app, I mean, that was a deeply pathetic and disappointing move by the city, proving that the city has no alternative to this company no vision for it. It doesn't even like take seriously its own history of regulation, right? There's been the understanding, right, that Uber is operating a, a taxi service and that it was operating illegally and that it made deals and then suddenly it was operating legally, but that it was still violating working conditions, getting around the city's minimum wage laws and, and should be dealt with. And so the solution was to just put every taxi onto Uber and subject them to what Uber workers have to deal with. It's ridiculous. The way that people's minds go blank when tech gets introduced sometimes is baffling, right? Because, you know, you've talked about it. We've talked about it. Tech is thought of and is used as an excuse for people to just start talking in eschological terms, right? They start waxing mystically when they when tech is invoked as if like they're about to give birth to god as if we are about to you know abandon history and social forces and economics that because tech is here and it's convenient narrative which has been cultivated for decades and decades because the people who are at the helm of tech or financiers or warmongers or elites and, and speculators who have every reason for people to not critically analyze and engage with it because they're using it to enrich themselves off of people and to put their hands in their wallets and take as much money out as possible hand over fist or to minimize their autonomy or to marginalize them further, right? And I'm encouraged why, you know, over the past decade, there's been more and more critical analysis of it, but I always worry if it's too late because like, it's not only that this tech is being used to quantify it, but now it's being adopted by these institutions, these financial institutions. Now it's being normalized by governance, by municipal governments, by city governments, by state governments, by national governments. Now it's being incorporated into how the markets are operating, how people are expected to socialize, how people are expected to make economic decisions, right? That's dangerous because all of those interventions by tech are how do we squeeze more money out of people? How do we organize people to more profitable patterns, not how do we do anything that prioritizes human beings and their agency and their welfare, right? In all the iterations or most of the iterations of tech, human beings are secondary concern. And the primary concern is how to make the markets happy or how to increase profits. And that is an incredibly worrying thing to spread further and further in society. And so there's always one concern I always have is like, or is it too late? I don't think it's too late, but it's always a concern like, has this or that intervention by financiers by Silicon Valley gone too far? And even when we roll back all the other stuff, this mindset or this pattern will be locked in? I hope not. I feel the need to say that, like, yes, like, I completely agree with everything that you just said. Like, I think it's spot on. And I, I think I just want to build on that final point, you know, to end this conversation, right? It does feel to me like, you know, we have a lot of talk about regulating technology properly about ensuring that you know we have the right guardrails in place that we have the right regulatory structure there but when you consider like you know as you were just saying and and as i discussed with all the ways that technology is used in this really exploitative way predatory way to enable these really terrible capitalist structures like at some point you just get to a point where you're like something has gone terribly wrong here and we need a corrective to like pull back on what has happened to recognize that 
maybe what we need is is more than regulation of these things to take off the worst edges, but like a real kind of opposition to some of the ways that technology is being used in society, the kind of social forms and, and economic trajectories that it is creating that are incredibly harmful to society and don't deserve just to be regulated, but need to be like considered unacceptable in society. It is a concern that as technology, I guess, proliferates, and as some of these people who are pushing this or that development spread, right, even if we can push against it, that not so much the damage has been done, but the way that people view technology will morph around and, and center on that as opposed to, you know, something that, you know, you talked about that a lot too, which is like things should be designed with intention, right, and purpose. One thing that I've seen some people talk about and that I've been interested in, you know, Cory Doctorow has written a bit about, you know, how China is doing a lot of things with technology. And the only thing that the United States and Europe have seen to learn from it is surveillance um, and social control. Whereas we should be thinking about planning and organizing the way that tech is developed and pushed forward, but that there's a taboo around central management, centralization, especially in the midst of this wave of people insisting that decentralization is politics, right? So how do we get to the point, right, where people take seriously the idea that if technology is supposed to save the world, if technology is supposed to help us, then like, why are we letting the people who are always depicted as parasites, you know, banks, VCs, some of these founders, why are we letting them decide the development of it instead of people who need or might benefit from some creative technical solution to a problem? Why are we not letting them think about if they need a technical solution or if they need instead of political or social economic solution, right? And getting to that point is part of that battle of trying to trying to mitigate the risk and all the concerns that we have about where tech will go. Because I do, and I think if, if we had different ways of thinking about tech, different philosophies about it, different cultural understanding of it, you know, then it would be easier to resist, you know, the devils insisting that like we need to use it to subjugate each other to more and more depressing conditions. But the question is like, how do we get there? Because in the meantime, the people who dominate the way that we talk about tech, the people who dominate the types of tech that are being developed, the people who dominate the funding and the signals for what matters and don't matter, are the people who have the exact opposite interests of what most people in the world and for certainty, most people in this country, most people in every single country have on their mind when they think like, what is something that could help me in my life? Are you saying my techno king, Elon Musk, is not going to save us? <laughs> <laughs> He's going to save somebody, just not us. <laughs> Ed, incredible insights as always. It's been fantastic to speak with you, to dig into this incredibly important topic. Thanks so much for taking the time. It's been awesome. Thanks for having me. Always a great time talking with you, Paris. Edward Ongweso Jr. is a staff writer at Motherboard and a co-host of This Machine Kills. You can follow him on Twitter at, at @bigblackjacobin. You can follow me at, at @parismarks, and you can follow the show at, at Tech Won't Save Us. Tech Won't Save Us is part of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can find out more about that at harbingermedianetwork.com. And if you want to support the work that I put into making the show every week and to help hit the stretch goal for the membership drive I'm doing this month, you can go to patreon.com/techwon'tsaveus and become a supporter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>